This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Bugle, Counterspin, The Young Turks, This American Life, The Colbert Report, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and The Onion Radio News with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. You might have thought, with the death of bin Laden, that the enormous authority Congress granted to the presidency back in 2001 would get curtailed now. But no, Republicans in the House actually want to expand that authority. House Armed Services Chairman Buck McKeon has introduced legislation that whites out the references to September 11th that were in the original authorization of the use of military force, and then he stretches the list of now permissible targets. It mentions armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, a term that's never defined, and in the most sweeping language conceivable, it grants to the president the authority to target all entities that continue to pose a threat to the U.S. and its citizens, both domestically and abroad. Where are the Tea Party folks who say they care so much about unfettered presidential power because this is a blank check, if ever there was one? 33 progressive Democrats sent a letter on Tuesday to McKeon objecting to this abdication of congressional authority. Among the signers were John Conyers, Pete DeFazio, Keith Ellison, Raul Grijalva, Jesse Jackson Jr., Dennis Kucinich, Sheila Jackson Lee, John Lewis, Jan Schakowsky, Maxine Waters, Lynn Woolsey, and not least of all, Barbara Lee. She was the only member of Congress to vote against the original authorization of force. At least now, she's in good company. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. Friends sing together. La 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 la. Friends do things together. La 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 la. Friends laugh together. Ha 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 ha. Friends make graphs together. La 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 la. Friends help you when you're in danger. Friends are people who are not strangers. Friends help you shift into a new place. Tell you if you've got food on your face. Friends are the ones on whom you can depend. He's my friend, he's not my friend. Friends are the ones who are there in the end. He's my friend, they're not my friend. Top story this week! Freedom! We won't let you down, freedom! Though actually we might let you down, freedom! In fact, we are definitely going to let you down, let you down! Middle East Uprising update now! What's that? <laughs> I don't know that song. George Michael? Yes, you do. Oh, yes, right. you do, Andy. It's a George Michael classic. Oh, it's my school you, song, actually. When you say you don't know a song like that, you lose musical credibility, Andy. <laughs> Not everything <laughs> is Bon Jovi and Boney M. Well, I'm, I'm flattered by, by the suggestion that I had musical credibility before that. <laughs> if it helps, it was Robbie Williams' debut solo single as well, Andy. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, Chris has lost musical credibility by going the other side of knowledge, <laughs> Anyway, Andy, freedom! That was the cry of William Wallace Braveheart shortly before the British tore him limb from limb. <laughs> and if you think about it, in many ways, he got his freedom, Andy, as we generously liberated his extremities from the oppressive ties of his torso. <laughs> and did he say thank you? Did he f He just died, the ungrateful Scot. <laughs> well... That cry of freedom has been sounding out across the Middle East over the last month with similarly brutal results. It's like the dictators of the world once went to a hypnotist show and the hypnotist told them that if they ever heard the word freedom, they should cluck like a chicken and open fire on their own people. <laughs> well, 
We and the rest of the world have been trying so hard to ignore what is happening in Syria, Yemen and Libya as much as we can. It's like that amnesty technique that adults sometimes use with children. I'm going to turn my back and when I turn back around... I want to see a stable democratic government here. <laughs> Except this time, whenever we turn around, it's just Gaddafi flipping the bird and pointing at his own bare ass. <laughs> I guess the big takeaway is, it does seem that we are currently in a lot more wars than we're giving ourselves credit for. <laughs> we're running a pretty impressive number of explosive physical discussions with countries in and around the Middle East. The problem is that we're being extremely careful not to call anything that we're doing a war. They're either humanitarian interventions or kinetic military actions or covert operations, but there are so many of them happening now that we're going to need to invent more euphemisms for war and we're going to have to do it fast. <laughs> so, Oh. Yemen news now! And Andy, in Yemen, we're involved in a spot of what I believe the potential UN resolution describes as violent nudging. <laughs> Just throwing a few ballistic elbows to knock them back onto the right track. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it, John. And um, uh, it's also, I guess, you know, that we've been previously nudging them by giving them lots and lots of weapons in exchange <laughs> yeah. for lots and lots of Yemeni money. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're, we're no stranger to the nudge. Yeah. So, I mean, it has led to... There's been... Uh, I, 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 I can't say I've fully followed the Yemen crisis. I mean, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of sport on this year, John, so... Right. I mean, things have to take priorities, but it does seem... I don't think the Yemenis would blame you for that. <laughs> it does seem that there have now been more resignations than at the World Pessimism Championships. <clears throat> Does that quite work? I think that nearly <laughs> works. I think that's just that close enough. Yeah. 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 I mean, I pr could probably have worded it better with a bit more time, but I'm just going to have to do. I think what happened with that joke, Andy, yep. is it's like in the semi-finals. You're right. uh, an Olympic sprinter who has just placed, so just getting through to the final, but in the knowledge that you are going to arrive last. <laughs> Uh, the Obama administration has been increasing airstrikes on suspected militants in Yemen in an attempt to keep them from gaining power while the government teeters. And a US official confirmed that uh, a strike last Friday killed Abu Ali al-Harith, uh, a mid-level al-Qaeda operative, which followed last month's attempted strike against Anwar al-Alaki, the uh, leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So, just to be clear, are we now fully admitting that we are trying to assassinate these people? <laughs> or are there still those strange excuses afterwards? Oh, it, it was an accident. And we were carrying a bomb on a plane <laughs> and we hit some turbulence and it must have just dropped on his house by mistake. We're very sorry and very embarrassed. <laughs> or, or maybe it's... Oh, we saw through a drone camera that there was a wasp on his nose and you know, we didn't want him to get stung. We know he's allergic to wasps, so uh, we launched three missiles at his house to scare the wasp off. <laughs> well, m maybe that they've been, uh, you know, hacking his emails. And they'd uh, they'd found out that uh, he wanted to have a new patio put in, <laughs> merely <laughs> helping him out by flattening his garden. And <laughs> that is entirely possible. Yeah, we can't rule now, that out. We've, we've been doing this secretly, although I don't know how secret anything can be when there's a huge explosion at the end <laughs> of it and a crater in the ground where a building used to be. But <laughs> we've also been doing it with the covert support of President Ali Abdullah Saleh, the uh, brutal, repressive leader of Yemen, and he's actually been a bit quiet this week. 
President Saleh because uh, last Friday he came down with a, a very nasty case of being blown up by a bomb. <laughs> and there's a lot of that flying around the region's leaders at the moment. It seems to be very contagious. Uh, it, it was initially reported as a rocket attack by rebels, but was later revealed to be a bombing at a mosque inside his palace. And apparently he's been in intensive care in hospital in Saudi Arabia since then and has had shrapnel removed for his body, as well as suffering 40% burns. But President Saleh has already said, Andy, that he's coming back. And I definitely wasn't expecting that, Andy. I was expecting him to pull a musharaf there, realise <laughs> he's got no more chips and walk away from the table. But instead, he's gone outside, he's stolen a bunch of car keys and is now pushing them towards the dealer and doubling down. <laughs> he's in it to win it, Andy. 40% burns to the body. He could be Yemen's first bionic president, <laughs> emerging from the smoke with a digital eye scanning for dissidents. <laughs> His, his supporters have been playing down his injuries, saying uh, he's overcome the health difficulties after successful surgery to remove shrapnel. Uh, sources expected him to return soon after completing his recovery and treating some light surface burns. Light surface burns? <laughs> Presumably th those are the ones on the surface of the 40% massive burns all over his body. I don't know, John, if you had a steak with 40% burns, it would still be pretty rare, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe that's <laughs> the angle they're, they're going with there. His supporters fired shots into the air on Thursday to celebrate reports that he would soon return to Yemen. And this might actually be the best way for President Saleh to gauge who's a supporter of his and who's a rebel, by just seeing which angle the bullets are flying. <laughs> are they going up in the air, or are they flying towards his head? That could be the key. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. The Obama administration's war in Libya is being conducted in apparent violation of the War Powers Act. That's not getting a whole lot of media attention, but what attention it is getting is often coming from conservatives. Washington Post columnist George Will blasted Obama and Congress on May 29th, writing that, quote, in a bipartisan cascade of hypocrisies, a liberal president with the collaborative silence of most congressional conservatives is traducing the war powers resolution, close quote. Will went on to call liberals situational ethicists for allowing Obama to violate the law and he went after John McCain for saying that he doesn't recognize the law as being constitutional in the first place. You know who else used to say that? One very own George Will. In 1983, Will wrote that Nixon shouldn't have even attempted to veto the act. He should have mailed it back to Congress with a note explaining that it was unconstitutional. A year later, Will called for it to be repealed. This seemed to come about because Will supported putting U.S. troops in Lebanon. 
The last time there was a real debate over the War Powers Act was during the 1999 NATO bombing of Serbia. Then, like now, many Republicans were talking about using the War Powers Act to constrain the war-making of a Democratic president. There was one exception, John McCain, who blasted his colleagues as well as Bill Clinton. And who was cheering him on back then? George Will, who largely seemed to agree with McCain's reasoning, writing that, quote, many House Republicans claiming an authority Congress neither possesses constitutionally nor cares to exercise embraced the act, close quote. It's quite a feat when one can make John McCain seem like the model of consistency, but George Will managed to do just that. President Obama has shown appalling disdain for the War Powers Act when it comes to Libya. Under the War Powers Act, the president's allowed to wage war without congressional approval only when the country's in actual or imminent danger or to repel sudden attacks. Neither of those conditions applied to the Libya bombing. Then, under the War Powers Act, he's got 60 days to get authorization from Congress, and if he fails to get that authorization, he must end the involvement. Well, the 60-day authorization period expired on Friday. And on Friday, President Obama belatedly and haughtily sent a letter to Congress seeking authorization, which he knew he couldn't get in time. In that letter, he said, It's always been my view that it's better to take military action, even in limited action such as this, with congressional engagement, consultation, and support. Note the phrase, it is better. Obama acts as though getting approval from Congress for war is a mere option, not the law or the Constitution, that he's obliged to follow. And so this constitutional lawyer, this Nobel Prize winner, and this anti-war candidate has aggrandized the president's war powers, just like George W. Bush did. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. So tie me to a post and block my ears. I can see where those orphans through my tears. And know my cold despite my faults and despite my growing fears. But I will hold on hope and I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck. And I In Libya, Gaddafi is clinging on to power like an angry limpet. Uh, more of his close advisers have recently defected, and he seems increasingly isolated. But that has not stopped Captain Crazy from doing what he does best, ranting incoherently about how fantastic he is. <laughs> I've said it before, Andy, and I'll say it again. He's like a West Coast rapper with an even larger sheet of murder charges. <laughs> uh, he even appeared on state television this week, defiantly stating that he was going to fight to the death, or, more specifically, as he put it, we will stay dead, alive, or victorious. 
That's an odd third option, Andy. You would usually take the dead there as being defeat and the alive as being victorious. What he seems to be suggesting is a third eventuality where he is neither dead <laughs> nor alive but victorious. Now, what's he saying, Andy? Is he going to morph into some kind of permanent vapour that hangs over Tripoli, therefore never leaving and claiming victory? Is he going to clone himself until Libya's population is entirely made up of six and a half million Colonel Gaddafis? Or is he going to turn himself into a plant? A Venus flytrap whose roots run deep throughout Libya and who can capture American planes in its mouth, swallow them and dissolve them in its stomach for nutrients? Or is there a fourth option, Andy, that being that Colonel Gaddafi does not know what the f*** he is talking about. <laughs> he, he may also be about to have less money, mo problems, as an internal management document uh, of the Libyan Investment Authority was leaked, uh, uh, leading to the location and freezing of $53 billion of Libyan state assets. Apparently... On uh, June the 30th last year, $293 million of Libyan state money was uh, on deposit in various HSBC accounts. A further $275 million was in an HSBC hedge fund. $110 million had been invested in private equity funds managed by the Royal Bank of Scotland. $182 million uh, was in Goldman Sachs accounts and funds. The French Bank Société Générale received $1.8 billion of Libyan Investment Authority money in three different funds. Wow! <laughs> Gaddafi's online banking must be a nightmare, Andy. <laughs> I hope he switched to paperless statements. How the f*** does he remember all his passwords? Uh, and what does Libya have in his PayPal account? It must be huge! <laughs> all of these assets have now been frozen under orders from the European Union and the United Nations. So we've basically taken his credit card away, Andy. We've cut it up in front of him, Andy, like a bratty teenage girl. You can't be trusted with this, so let's see how you get along without it. It's time for you to learn some lessons about what life is like in the real world! <laughs> and true to form, I'm guessing that Gaddafi has responded like a teenage girl as well, running upstairs, slamming doors and throwing a tantrum. I can't believe you're doing this to me! You've ruined my life! I hate you, I hate you, I hate you! <laughs> and you know what, Andy? I blame ourselves. You know, by allowing him all that money for all those years, we have raised a loathsome brat. <laughs> That's right. We only encourage his bad behaviour. Exactly. You're going to make a great dad, John. Father of mine, take me back to the day. Yeah, when I was still your golden boy, back before you went away. Luckily, the Iraq war is winding down. I know it's been a disaster, but remember, we have a deal with the Iraqis that by the end of 2011, uh, we have to leave Iraq entirely. Now, and remember, in July of 2011, we're going to start to uh, withdraw troops from Afghanistan. So good news all around. We're finally winding down these incredibly expensive wars. And in the case of Iraq, completely ineffectual. In the case of Afghanistan, fairly ineffectual, to say the least. Um, here's the bad news. Apparently, we're not. What? Well, we just got a report in from uh, the Pentagon today, Defense Secretary Robert Gates, saying that the members of the Iraqi government have indicated that they are, quote, very open to a continuing presence by the United States. 
Okay, first of all, they might be open to it, and I'm not sure about that, but why are we open to it? Okay, we've been there plenty long enough, lost plenty of troops there for reasons no one can still de decipher, and God, we have wasted over a trillion dollars there. It's madness. By some uh, estimates, when you figure in the future, costs up to $3 trillion. All right, well, uh, Pentagon spokesperson Elizabeth Robbins says, quote, we are willing to entertain a request for continued assistance, consistent with our commitment to a long-term partnership with Iraq, but the ball is in the Iraqis' court to ask. Well, let's hope to God they don't ask. Now, they say they're going to ask, and they're talking about anywhere between 10 to 20,000 troops. It ain't going to be 10. It's much more likely to be around 20,000 troops that we're going to keep in Iraq past 2011. I hope the reports are wrong. What are we doing, man? Enough is enough. Larry Korb, who's a uh, national security, one of the top national security experts in the country, says, look, this might actually hurt our cause in Afghanistan and in other places. Because if, you know, the Taliban, for example, see that we're going to stay in Iraq despite all of our assurances that we would not. Remember, we're going to dismantle our bases. We said they weren't permanent. And now if we turn around and we say, well, we are going to stay indefinitely with, you know, tens of thousands of troops, well, what message does that send? I think it sends a terrible message across the world, but I'm much more interested in here, the United States. It sends a message that we're going to keep spending a tremendous amount of money there and probably losing uh, a lot of lives uh, over there for no good reason. Now, when you get to Afghanistan, it's not any better. Uh, you know, we were supposed to start significant withdrawals in July of 2011. Well, we now find out the number is about 5,000. Whoop de frickin' do! We got about 100,000 troops there. That's 5%. I can do the math for you. But they assure us, don't worry, that's the beginning. By the end of 2011, we might withdraw another 5,000. Ooh. You know what that means? That means we're not really withdrawing. We're just, you know, it's just smokes and mirrors. It's just games. You know that when President Obama put 30,000 more troops in, not a lot of people caught this. Defense Secretary Robert Gates said, oh yeah, I have to do a slight correction on that. Just as a matter of logistics, etc., I'm going to add 8,000. Now remember, the military originally asked for 40,000. I mean, that is such an Obama compromise. They asked for 40,000. He was thinking of putting none in. Eventually, he puts 38,000 in. So the amount that they're withdrawing in July is less than the correction. Absurd. But look, so many people are tired of it. Even Republicans now uh, are saying, and of course it's because it's President Obama. It was a Republican president. They'd be like, no, we have to stay forever. But luckily it's a Democratic president. So now it's become bipartisan. Bob Corker is saying people are incredibly frustrated. He says our troops there and, and some of the people he speaks to in the military are frustrated with what's going on in Afghanistan. What's the mission? When does it ever end? Why are we supporting the corrupt government of Afghanistan? To what end? Uh, there's a bipartisan group in the uh, House Four Republicans, four Democrats calling for withdrawal, uh, led by Ch Chaffetz, who's a Republican from Utah, and Welch, who's a Democrat from Vermont. Okay, hey, that's good. Howard Dean has just changed his mind on it. He said, look, I was in favor of the Afghanistan war. I was in favor of President Obama's strategy. But now we've gotten to the point where we don't really have a partner for peace there. Hamid Karzai keeps, you know, blaming us for every single thing that happens. He hasn't made any improvements. There's still rampant corruption etc etc and the list goes on so we gotta go we gotta get out of there we just got bin laden it's a perfect moment to say mission accomplished 
kind of, at least a little bit. Now let's get out of there and stop wasting our money. There. You know all these cuts that they're doing domestically? The Republicans just suggested another $45 billion in cuts in domestic spending. Is anybody cutting Afghanistan? No. Now I told you about the bipartisan effort, and by the way, Ron Paul got huge cheers in the Republican debate in South Carolina when he said we should leave Afghanistan. So the Republican voters are there, the Democratic voters are there. In fact, almost every poll shows 60% uh, and above for leaving and within the year. Like, we, the American people, overwhelming majority saying, leave, gone, end of this by the end of the year. <laughs> we're planning to withdraw maybe 10,000 people by the end of the year, and we're planning to stay at least till 20. 14. Stop wasting our money there. What are you going to do? Fix Afghanistan? I mean, part of quote unquote fixing Afghanistan is you want to change their culture. Man, look, I don't love their culture, and I've said that many times on this show. I'm not afraid to say that, but I don't want our army trying to change other people's culture. It's one thing to disagree with it, it's another thing to try to change it with weapons and an army. That ain't never going to work. That's not how you're going to do it. I, what, what a waste of money, and unfortunately, we continue to go in that direction. Don't like the direction you are going to. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. The May 10th Washington Post contained a somewhat confusing report by Aaron Davis about the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq that began, quote, The U.S.'s pleas for Iraq's government to decide within weeks whether American troops should stay beyond a year-end deadline to leave will not be met, Iraqi politicians say complicating plans for the U.S. military withdrawal, close quote. Wait, what? If the deadline to extend U.S. troop presence is not extended, then U.S. troops have to leave, as was previously mandated. That doesn't seem too complicated. There is a political problem in Iraq in that most people don't want U.S. troops to stay, while some political leaders have hinted they might be open to an extension. But maybe readers would have been better served if the Post had started with the fifth paragraph, which reads, quote, A growing chorus of military strategists in Washington would like a deal allowing at least some continued U.S. military presence in Iraq. Amid the broad unrest across the Middle East, they say, a U.S. foothold in Iraq is critical to help ensure stability in that country and to keep Iran and other potential aggressors in check, close quote. Well, that's a good deal clearer than referring to complications in plans for withdrawal. Readers understand, or should, that U.S. government priorities shape U.S. media coverage. If journalists aren't going to change that, they might at least be open about it. Neck, 
calling some friend, trying to cash some check. He's acting dumb. That's what you've come to expect. Feeling the hay. Feeling the hay. Feeling the hay. Need all in the hay. And in Syria, John, the, uh, well, it's pretty messy situation in uh-huh. Syria. President Assad is certainly living up to the first syllable of his name. And, uh, of course, it's hard to know exactly what's going on, because the Syrian government has refused to allow most of the foreign media access to the country, although it did say that the bugle could go in. But, uh, oh. unfortunately, I've been busy this week, and uh, John's a chicken. <laughs> chicken! <laughs> um, so, grow a pair and get over there. But anyway, um... <laughs> So once again, the United Nations, John, has sprung into action like a coiled donut and <laughs> has responded to the unfolding catastrophe in Syria by debating with itself whether or not to tell Syria that it's being a bit naughty. Now, understandably, mm-hmm. such extremely strong words have caused a split in the, un-security count- sorry, the UN Security Council, <laughs> and Brazil, China and Russia have said that they're worried about hurting Syria's feelings at a time when it's really not feeling very good about itself already. Brazil have suggested a compromise whereby any resolution is delivered to the Syrian government in the form of a video of kids juggling footballs on the beach at Rio de Janeiro, China has offered to deploy 2,000 peacekeeping infantry troops, but only ones made of terracotta. And Russia wants to airdrop vodka over the entire country to help it drink its way through its problems. (laughs) Funny how countries always fall back on what they know best in times of crisis. (laughs) We in Britain, we've offered to send in Vera Lynn. Um, We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but there is a possibility that it might be in a few years' time in The Hague. In Syria at the moment, uh, there is clearly a looming humanitarian crisis on a very depressing scale. Of all the global cities that you do not want to be living in at the moment, the town of Jizya al-Shagur is right up there. In real estate terms... Is it worse than Derby? I think it is, Andy. Really? In real estate terms, it's very much a buyer's market there. <laughs> to put it indelicately, there may be some unexpectedly open plots of land to build on there very soon. The problem is uh, that 120 Syrian uh, troops were reportedly killed there over the weekend in protests, and the authorities have made it clear that they will act decisively and forcefully to restore control. And just to be clear about quite how chilling that statement is. When President al-Assad acts decisively, things get broken. When he said he was going to change the TV channel decisively, he ordered tanks to open fire on his television set, then bought himself a new plasma screen that was preset to the channel he wanted instead. <laughs> yeah, the army are now advancing uh, on Jizr al-Shagur after what it claims was a lethal attack by rebel protesters on government troops, which others have claimed was a lethal attack by government troops on government troops who didn't mm-hmm. want to launch a lethal attack on rebel protesters. And it's left many fearing a repeat of the 1982 Hammer Massacre when the current president's father ordered a scorched earth policy resulting in the deaths of tens of thousands of his own people. But still, John, these people should count themselves lucky. They don't know how good they've got it being fired on by their own military, hounded from their homes, having their electricity, water and food supplies cut off, because at least they did not have to go through the soul-shattering trauma of applying for loads of Olympic tickets, but not getting very many of them due to overwhelming public demand and the random nature of a balloting system. Oh, Andy, I'm sorry. But it's time we in Britain... I'm sorry, Andy. We need to rise up, John. We, we We cannot sit back and take this kind of oppression 
any longer. What about our human rights, John? What about my fundamental right to pay over the odds to watch minor sports I habitually have no interest in? Where is Amnesty International now, John? It's all gone f***ing quiet. Sod Syria, there are loads of Arab nations. But there's only one <laughs> London Olympics. And for too long, people selling sports tickets to us have told us how to live our lives. But no longer, Britain. Rise up. Let's lay our own eggs, wield our own spoons, and hold our own people's Olympics. Even if the IOC's armed forces try to stop us and the government suppresses the foreign media from reporting it. We have to take a stand, John. These, these people in Syria, are they are frankly eating a very friendly omelette. Do I deserve this? No, you deserve much better in your life. In Egypt on Monday, the day after President Obama announced Osama bin Laden was killed, out on the street, it was kind of a non-event. No demonstrations. Yes, the Muslim Brotherhood issued a statement. Yes, obviously people talked about the news. But that was it. It was a normal work day. Crazy traffic, a lot of smoking, everybody glued to their cell phones. And for all of us wondering, what does the death of Osama bin Laden mean for the Mideast? This was the reaction in the most influential, most populous Arab country in the world. A fourth of all Arabs live in Egypt. Our producer Nancy Updike went by Tahrir Square in the afternoon. If anyone in Egypt wanted to mark Osama bin Laden's death publicly or spark a national conversation about it, Tahrir Square would be the place. But the only activity I saw there on the day of the announcement was a man taking a nap on the grass. In Cairo, the conversation is not about bin Laden. It's about something completely different. From the moment I got here, I was hearing the same thing over and over. I'd love to talk, but I'm on my way to a meeting. Or, I'm in a meeting, can I call you back? These weren't work meetings. They're the meetings of 82 million people deciding what their country will be. If Egypt had a national sound right now, it would be the sound of chairs scraping into a circle. Or maybe the sound right after that. (laughs) Arguing. This man is saying, why, 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 why? He's one of about 15 people in a room forming a new political party. They're figuring out what the party stands for and how it should present itself right now in front of me while other people are hammering a party banner onto pieces of wood for a rally. They've got a name for the party, the Egyptian Social Democratic Party. But what does that mean exactly? The man shouting, why, is responding to someone else who is saying, we're not liberals, we're not calling ourselves liberals. What's wrong with liberalism, the why man wants to know. Liberalism has a taint now, the other guy says. Some people are equating liberal parties with infidels. I have nothing against liberalism, he adds. I am a liberal. And wait, how are we different from other free market parties, someone else asks. A man sitting behind the one desk in the room clarifies. We're somewhere between socialism and liberalism. Free market, but more like France or Germany than America. I spent the week going to meetings. They're happening everywhere. This one is 25 men sitting on plastic chairs in a circle out on the sidewalk, 
lecturing each other about politics. I went to another meeting on the astroturf deck of a boat on the Nile. Two judges, three religious men, and a DJ, who I think qualifies for the title of Mr. Meeting. This is Gihad, a charming six-foot-tall DJ, music producer, and party boy, who was apolitical and, he cheerfully admits, rather debauched under Mubarak's rule. He told an interpreter and me about sleeping till 5 p.m., going to parties all night, but then he saw friends die in front of him on Tahrir Square, and now he's quit being a DJ, he's living off his savings, and he goes to meetings all day. He starts ticking off his previous 24 hours. Noon prayer, followed by a neighborhood meeting about how to deal with crime, then on to a seminar about the pros and cons of a parliamentary republic versus a presidential republic, 8 p.m. dinner meeting with friends working on political issues, 11 p.m. meeting with other activists to nail down the agenda for a meeting the following day, then at 2 a.m., a final meeting back in his neighborhood. Four hours sleep, woke up, picked up a friend, drove here. My interpreter and I left Mr. Meeting, got off the elevator at the sixth floor of an office building, and headed into a conference room for one last meeting that ended up being pretty mind-blowing. At first, it looked like a classic corporate gab fest. Fluorescent-lit room about 30 people sitting around a huge oval conference table with croissants and breadsticks in front of them. But this was an assembly of two very different groups, longtime enemies, in fact, sitting face to face to see whether, in the new Egypt, they'll still be enemies. On one side was writers, journalists, editors, left-wing Egyptians actively working to keep Egypt secular. On the other side, current and former members of the Gama Islamiyah, an Egyptian Islamist organization that spent years murdering both foreign tourists and Egyptians. They went after policemen and politicians, including the president of Egypt. They were part of the plot that killed Anwar Sadat. The men sitting here have served decades in Egypt's prisons. The Gama Islamiyah also targeted Egyptian intellectuals, exactly the sort of people they're now sitting across from. <laughs> The Gama Islamiyah started off the meeting the way they had to, by reiterating the fact that they publicly renounced violence 14 years ago, and they still renounce it today. No one is forcing us to say this, said Naga Ibrahim, a thin man with a long white beard, the Gama Islamiyah leader who spoke most often. He said, Mubarak is gone, we can say what we want, and we're saying the same thing today we've been saying for years, no violence. After 15 minutes of back and forth about that, one of the journalists suddenly shifted the conversation with a quiet question. What's your position on art? For years, Islamic extremists have preached a sort of cultural anorexia. No poetry, music, dance. And in this meeting, once art came up, it took over the conversation. The secularists wanted to know, what art is okay in your view? Does painting have a place in Egypt? Sculpture? How about theater? Movies? Do you believe in such a thing as Islamic art and non-Islamic art? Would you ban any art if you could? The conversation went from chilly and polite to blunt. One of the secularists, a famous novelist, Yusuf al-Qaid, said, We're not here so you can reassure us. We're here to find out what you really believe. For the next hour, the secularists and the men from the Gama Islamiyah have a surreal conversation, the kind that happens when people with profound differences do manage to speak civilly and honestly with each other. 
The two groups argued, quoted poetry, brought up specific Arab pop stars in their videos, and talked about the evolution of Islamic scholarship on the subject of whether it's okay to paint or sculpt a person. Short version, according to the head of Gamas Lamia, first no, then yes, and now it's probably okay. Photography, fine. Ballet, not okay. No, there isn't Islamic literature and non-Islamic literature. Literature is literature. We like music. Well, some music. It can't be sexy. We used to sing ourselves and put on little plays when we were in prison to entertain ourselves. And we read. One of the Gama Islamiyah men said, I really like the writing of Naguib Mahfouz. Since reading him, I don't read any other novels. I read all his books when I was in prison, and I related to them. This was an olive branch of sorts. Mahfouz is Egypt's most celebrated writer, proudly secular, who was stabbed in an assassination attempt by an Islamist militant after Gama Islamiyah put him on a hit list. Later in the meeting, one of the Gama leaders, Nagah Ibrahim, said, Look, we may differ with you about art, but Gama Islamiyah will not burn art, will not destroy, will not ban. I could disagree with you about literature, art, or politics. That doesn't mean I would be violent against you or attack you. No, we fight thought with thought. Maybe promising not to stab someone seems a little too basic to be a bragging point. But in this conversation, it was part of a bigger statement by the Gama Islamiya. We want to be part of the real Egypt, not a fantasy that we try to create by killing people. The Gama Islamiya is in this meeting because it was the first violent Islamist group to not only renounce violence, but also publicly apologize and say what they did was wrong. Their leadership then spent years writing a detailed, multi-volume refutation of their former beliefs, including a direct challenge to Al-Qaeda's argument that America is a nation of infidels who deserve to be killed. Gama Islamiya said, no, that's not true. And they quoted the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, guaranteeing freedom of religion in their rebuttal. All of which brings me to Osama bin Laden. Egyptian thinkers provided the inspiration for Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's modern ideological underpinnings are mostly from Egyptian Islamist writers, especially Sayyid Qutb. Bin Laden's second-in-command, Ayman al-Zawahri, is Egyptian, and he started reading Qutb as a teenager. One of Bin Laden's professors at university was Qutb's brother. The modern phenomenon of violent political Islam has its roots in Egypt, and in terms of ideology and some key members, so does Al-Qaeda. But what does that mean for Egypt today? I had a guess, and I ran it by the leader of Gama Islamiya, Sheikh Karam Zudi, the day after the meeting at his home. It seems to me that Ayman Zawahri and, and, and Bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda, they're following ideas that came from Egypt 50 years ago, and Egypt itself has moved on. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, these are the ideas of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Egypt has overcome that, has uh, gone through other phases. Like I said, the youth on Tahrir, they brought down a whole regime just with the strength of the word and uh, maybe a stone. Do you ever worry that, that it could come back in, in Egypt, violence in the name of Islam? I'm uh, sure that it will not return, inshallah.
I feel it won't come back, God willing. Egyptians right now are in love with Egypt. Egypt is what they want to talk about, not bin Laden. And that includes groups like the Gama Islamiya that used to have a similar ideology. The Gama Islamiya leaders are doing the same thing other Egyptians are doing, sitting down at tables with croissants and breadsticks and talking about the future of their country. Nancy Updike in Cairo. I got troubles though, but not today. Cause they're gonna wash away. They're gonna wash away. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app just named the Best App Ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. Ever since we took out Osama bin Laden, Americans have been wondering who was going to fill his shoes. All we knew for sure was that after discovering his porn stash, no one was going to touch his socks. Now, numerous people, numerous people have been mentioned as potential replacements for bin Laden, from American-born radical cleric Anwar al-Awlaki to Ashton Kutcher. He is the go-to guy for replacing raving madmen. But it looks, folks, it looks, it looks like they may have finally found their man. First, I want to bring you the latest on uh, perhaps a replacement for Osama bin Laden. Uh, a source is now saying that the terror group has picked bin Laden's temporary replacement, the man you see on the right, Saif al-Adel, an Egyptian and former special forces officer said to be in his 50s. Evidently, he really nailed the interview. <laughs> when asked where he sees himself in five years, he said, sliding off a board into the ocean. <laughs> Folks. This choice right here was a huge surprise because the smart money was on Al-Qaeda's longtime number two, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now, I know this guy is an unrepentant mass murderer, but I can't help feel kind of sorry for him. I mean, for decades, he was bin Laden's second in command. He should have gotten the promotion, all those late night shifts working in the cave, burning the midnight oil, burning the midnight hostages only to be passed over for a temp who doesn't even have a beard? What's next? Casual Fridays where everyone comes in wearing denim suicide vests? So, Ayman, Ayman, our hearts go out to you, and hopefully soon, so will our Navy SEALs. I don't mind, I don't care. So 
echoes of empire. In the wake of the Osama killing, in the outskirts of Islamabad, Pakistan, grumblings have been heard by U.S. think tankers and various other talking heads about Pakistan's alleged double game with the U.S. and its alleged duplicity in the so-called war on terror. But such a reading is notoriously short-sighted and one-sided, and it ignores the old maxim that nations have no friends, only interests. And all nations play double and sometimes triple games. Oh, they talk of allies and friends, but they are but words. They mean subjects or servants. Consider this when next you hear some suit blab about the war on terror. On September 10th, 2002, a Democratic congressman named Jim McDermott said the following on CNN's Crossfire. But you've got to remember that of American policy, we put the Taliban there. We gave the money. We funded the Taliban through the Pakistanis. And all that money, we could have cut off that money and stop what was going on. We knew what was going on there. All we wanted was a stable, quiet Afghanistan so we could put a pipeline down there, through there. That's really what we were up to. This means that the Taliban, the forerunner of al-Qaeda, was a creation of the CIA, the ISI, Pakistani Intelligence, and MI6, British Intelligence. Pakistan wanted it as a buffer against Pashtun power in Afghanistan and as a potential tool of war against India. And the Americans and British wanted a weapon against the Soviet-backed government in Kabul. Have we forgotten how an adult-pated Ronald Reagan compared the Taliban Mujahideen to our founding fathers because of their ferocity against the Russians? Stephen Kinzer, in his 2006 book, Overthrow, quotes an Afghan secularist telling the Americans, for God's sake, you're financing your own assassins. The Taliban gave birth and sustenance to al-Qaeda, and the rest is history. The wars since then have also been of U.S. creation for dominance, not democracy, for oil markets, not free markets, for resources, not for human rights. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Dennis Kucinich has once again shown his great courage on the issue of war and peace as it relates to Libya, while the leaders of the Democratic Party have shown themselves to be worse than useless. This week, Kucinich sponsored a resolution requiring Obama to cease military action against Libya within 15 days, pursuant to the War Powers Act, which Obama's been flouting. The Kucinich resolution was gathering so much support both from Democrats and Republicans that John Boehner delayed the vote on it and submitted his own resolution, which would require the Obama administration to at least provide cost figures for the Libyan intervention and to prohibit the use of ground troops. So how did Nancy Pelosi, the supposedly dovish leader of the Dems in the House, respond? Well, she opposed both resolutions, saying they don't advance our efforts in the region and they send the wrong message to our NATO partners. 
Let me get this straight here. When U.S. imperial efforts collide with the mandates of the Constitution and the War Powers Act, Pelosi is saying that the Constitution and the statute must yield to the president's appetite for power? There's a reason the founders required Congress to declare war and not the president, because they were worried about just such an appetite. Obama is having the Constitution for dinner, and Pelosi is serving it up on a platter. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. It's the Onion Radio News. A friendly dragon is added to the U.S. arsenal. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Pentagon has announced the addition of a friendly dragon to its growing list of formidable weaponry. Snargar, a 70-ton fire-breathing behemoth, much like the dragons described in ancient legends, is expected to be deployed this year in the Middle East. General Duff Bradley briefed reporters this morning. Snargar has been secretly training at a government test site in Nevada for the past six months. He's been 100% effective at neutralizing ghost towns. The general denied rumors that Snargar will be sent to Iran to destroy a suspected cache of demon eggs. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Oh, Reverend, please, can I chew your ear? I've become what I most fear. And I know there's no such thing as ghosts, but I have seen the demon host. As usual, today WikiLeaks has brought us yet another amazing story that our press was not able to attain before. They released more than 700 classified documents about Guantanamo that show, as perhaps never before, the truly oppressive nature of America's detention system. The most stunning revelations is the sheer number of innocent men who were in prison. Of the 779 men who have been detained, at least 150 were determined to be innocent sometimes, oftentimes, after being locked up for years. Foreign papers, like the Daily Telegraph in the UK, led with that story, because it's obviously startling, right? We were told that Guantanamo had the most dangerous Al-Qaeda and Taliban detainees and terrorists. And it turns out 150 people that we imprisoned there for years were innocent? Look, that's why we have trials. That's why we're not supposed to do lawless outposts like Guantanamo. We're supposed to be better than this. By the way, how did our domestic press handle this outrageous revelation? 
The New York Times had an oblique reference in the 19th paragraph of the story to 158 detainees who did not receive formal hearings. And they mentioned, oh, by the way, these people had, quote, no ties or significant knowledge about al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Now, how about the Washington Post? They mentioned 150 innocent detainees in a bullet point, but don't even write about them in the text of the article. Thank you for your piercing reporting, Pravda. And then there's the case of the innocent journalists we also locked up. Sami al-Hajj was held as an enemy combatant for more than six years and never charged with an act of terrorism. Well, the newly released documents show a key reason for his attention. It was his work as an Al Jazeera cameraman. Analysts thought that he could provide information about, quote, the Al Jazeera News Network's training program, telecommunications equipment, and news gathering operations in Chechnya, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. So they knew he wasn't with Al-Qaeda all along. Who cares? Keep him locked up anyway, because he might give us information about an Arab news station. Are you kidding me? What happened to this country? And of course, just this month, the Obama administration reversed course on holding a civilian trial for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and has decided to try him in Guantanamo instead. Impeccable timing, as always. With me now is Ben Wisner. He's the litigation director for the American Civil Liberties Union. He's been a human rights observer at military commission proceedings held at Guantanamo Bay. <sighs> All right. Look, let me start with the broad question. Because, Ben, I, I want to know what happened to this country. I mean, you've been working at the ACLU. I mean, this wasn't America before, right? We didn't keep 150 innocent people in a hole in Guantanamo Bay. That's, what, what happened? Well, let's not treat this as some accident. This is a result of very specific policy decisions by senior Bush administration officials. Uh, typically, when our military captures people, they hold a hearing at or near the time or place of capture to determine whether the person is a civilian or a combatant. Uh, for Guantanamo, instead, we used a dragnet. Uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld said, we'll figure out who they are later, put them in planes, bring them to Guantanamo. Uh, we'll call them the most vicious, best-trained killers on the face of the earth, the worst of the worst, and we'll sort it out later. Now it's 2011. We still don't know who everyone is who's being held at Guantanamo. One of these documents refers to someone and says, we don't know his identity yet. This is after eight years of detention at Guantanamo. Come so this, on, is, look, this I, is what happens when you abandon the rule of law uh, and instead literally open an island outside the law where people can be held without charge or trial. Look, I'm asking the American people, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, what are we doing? You think we should keep people for eight years when we don't even know their name? I mean, that's the whole point of the American justice system. And to your point, Ben, we got a great video of Dick Cheney. Tell us how dangerous all of these people were. Let's watch. And they did not fight in uniform, which is one of the requirements for uh, complying with the laws of war. They attacked civilian populations. That's their only target. Uh, they don't represent any state or any sovereign state uh, that was a party to uh, the Geneva Convention. Yeah, all those people that were attacking us, like the Al Jazeera cameraman, right? That they kept there for six years. But we should make another point about this, Cenk, which is that there are people at Guantanamo who easily could have been tried and convicted in legitimate federal courts many years ago. In, in your lead-in, you referred to the 9-11 case. Uh, it's, it should be a national scandal that we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, uh, and we haven't even had a trial to bring the perpetrators to justice. The reason for that is that instead of following our values, following our traditions, following the rule of law, we instead create this island prison, uh, dump people in, create secret black site prisons, 
subject people to torture, uh, and, and now it becomes that much more difficult to restore the rule of law. See, Ben, that's what I say all the time. We've got to bring these people to justice. I mean, this 9-11 happened right here. Nearly 3,000 people killed, and yet we haven't brought them to justice. It drives me. They're like, oh, why should we try them in New York? Because the crime happened in New York. So t that's, that's my question to you. The people who say we should do this in Guantanamo, we should ignore our normal rule of law in America, we should do this in this lawless outpost that we've set up, do they hate the American justice system? Are they un-American? Well, I think you need to call them what they are. I think they're cowards. I think people who think that we ought to change our entire justice system because of the perceived threat of a handful of people, whoever they are, should be called cowards. The point of having a rule of law is that if we don't have evidence to support holding someone, we let that person go. If we used Guantanamo justice in our regular criminal justice system, why would we have trials? The prosecution thinks people are guilty. But the point is, acquitting people, letting them walk out, even if they are guilty, makes us stronger, makes us safer, upholds our values, uh, gives us respect throughout the world, and is the fundamental legitimacy of a legal system. Ben Weisner from the ACLU, thank you for joining us today. And I just want to tell the audience one more thing. Look, if you think that you believe in this Guantanamo nonsense and you don't believe in our American justice system, you're letting the terrorists win. You're saying, okay, you win, Al-Qaeda, you win, Zawahiri, you win, uh, Bin Laden. We're not going to do it our way anymore. We're going to trash the American justice system and we're going to do it your way. And Ben is right. That's being a coward. That's being scared of the terrorists. These colors don't run. We got to be better than that. My name is Bethany, and I'm calling from Indianapolis um, in regards to the uh, message that was left uh, on the last show about Citizen Radio. Um, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of things clear. But if his charge is that they are idealistic, then I would say absolutely guilty. Yes, they are. They expect a lot of their listeners. Um, as far as Obama, uh, you know, they expect that if you are an Obama supporter, that you at least challenge him. You know, the fact that he's a war criminal is that a fact, and and we need to make it clear to the administration that we don't support that. Uh, we, you know, we're supportive of him, but not supportive of that, um, and several of the other, you know, policy decisions that he's made. As far as veganism goes, I mean, it's just the fact that factory farming is the number one contributor to global warming, and animals are brutally killed constantly. I mean, the, the practices by factory farms are just disgusting. So it, I'm not a vegan yet. I just had weight loss surgery, and it's not been possible for me to get that back into my diet. But Jamie was here a couple of weeks ago and was so supportive and told me to get a book called The Thrive Diet and sent me a tweet the next day saying, you know how you want to live, so do it. And that was so meaningful. These people are supportive. Yes, they cuss all the time. Who cares? They're subversive. They're alienating. That's who they are. And their listeners love it. And I hope that more people that listen to your show will listen to them and will, you know, at least if they're not willing to make the changes in their life immediately, at least take it from them that there's a better, there is a better way to live. And there is a more progressive way to live. And they're not arrogant about it. And they're not rude about it. So 
I would just urge your listeners and those that have given up, you know, to give them another chance because it's a really great show and they really care about their fans and, you know, the people who eventually become their friends. So, yeah, that's my defensive citizen radio. Jay, I love the show. Um, keep it up. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Lucius in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I uh, just wanted to call and uh, uh, second the uh, message that uh, we heard from uh, Dominic in Castle, in Castle Rock, Colorado. Uh, I really uh, strongly agree with his views. I think he, played, he summed it up well. Um, you know, I think now's the time for, uh, you know, energy policy to be the focus uh, on a democratic side. And I think, I think Obama and the Democrats in Washington um, are on that page too. So you know, if we can work together, we can uh, we can uh, we can focus on that. You know, uh, I think most of your listeners probably believe in uh, capitalism and democracy uh, and think that you know we we can make this happen. Uh, but it's uh, it doesn't happen by itself. Uh, you know what? What we have to do is come together uh, and support our politicians, and you know, pack pack DC full of Democrats in 2012, so that you know, in 2013 we can put an energy policy into law. So you know, I I, I support Dominic, and uh, think he's right. Uh, so that's it. Thanks. Hey, Jay. My name is Lenny. I live in uh, Brooklyn, and I just want to say that I really love your show. And I also want to say that I really love Citizen Radio. Uh, Citizen Radio is probably where I get most of my news source from, and it's pretty awesome. And I just want to say that I do want to uh, do PJJ with Jamie Kilstein. I really feel like I could beat him. Uh, and uh, I'm totally kidding. But actually, no, I do actually feel like I could beat him. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Uh, there will be a few more voicemails played at the very end of the show. Again, uh, you know, a few of them piled up from people calling in, responding about Citizen Radio. Uh, so if you're interested, stick around at the very end of the show for those. Uh, otherwise, you know, you don't have to. I have a couple of big announcements for you guys today. First of all, a listener, you know, details for a listener meetup have been solidified for Netroots Nation. Uh, this is very exciting. I've partnered up with uh, David Pakman of the David Pakman Show and Sam Cedar of the Majority Report. And uh, so at least the three of us and, you know, any other staffers they happen to bring along with them will be there. And of course, the, the listeners from all of those shows. So that is happening Thursday, June 16th, probably around 9.30 p.m. at The Newsroom in downtown Minneapolis. So if you uh, are going to be in the area, you know, regardless of whether or not you are attending Netroots Nation, then by all means, uh, stop in and say hi to us. And to get those details in writing, head to facebook.com slash best of the left. There will be linked the, you know, event details. So, you know, there, the details will be there in writing for you to have. But also, if you plan on attending and you're on Facebook, then you can confirm uh, that you're going to be there. The other update I have for you guys is hopefully an interesting and, you know, completely brand new way 
uh, for you to volunteer if you would like to help promote progressive new media. Uh, so this is a kind of an insider's project. If you are interested in being involved in that, uh, get, in, get in touch with uh, with me, jay at bestoftheleft.com, and just let me know that you're interested, and I will get back to you with details. Uh, it is uh, you know very, very hush-hush, but uh, again, I'm partnering up with uh, David Pakman on this. And if you're interested in helping to support uh, shows like ours and, you know, being, uh, you know, kind of on the team to uh, to help spread the word, then just let me know. Now, speaking of people who help support the show, I want to thank uh, uh, all the volunteers who do an awesome job behind the scenes. Uh, Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, and Lauren are all kicking ass behind the scenes, helping to bring this show to you. And uh, and a couple of members, of course, who financially make the show possible, Kareem R., signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on May 23rd of last year and has stuck with the show since then, uh, which is huge. So thank you, Kareem. And Maria M. signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on May 22nd of last year and has stuck with the show, uh, you know, for uh, going on two years now. So huge thanks to Kareem and Maria and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show in a variety of ways. For details on everything you can do, check out bestoftheleft.com. There's a big box that says support BOTL and check out all the things you can do there. Of course, you can start just by telling everyone you know about it. Word of mouth is huge to spread the word of shows like this. You can join up with us and stay connected to the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. That is also a great way to help spread the word online. And for details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a phone farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a phone farewell to a friend Hey Jay, this is Carlos from the Chicagoland area uh, I just wanted to call regarding a voicemail left by by someone in the uh, latest episode where he was um, we were just criticizing a show called Citizen Radio and I'm a big fan of Citizen Radio and I actually found you through that show and the episode that you were on and I just wanted to respond by saying that he criticized them for, for not for being vegan but for saying that vegan is the right thing to do and I believe that as progressive as progressive which we all are uh, if we listen to the best of the left, then when when the meat industry, when, when factory farms make up the biggest portion of global warming, and 99% of the meat that we have is from factory farms, then as progressives, we have a duty to 
to not support that, or else we're hypocrites and we're not. We can't call ourselves environmentalists. And as far as President Obama goes, when when he campaigned as a progressive candidate, and ever since he's been to, in an office, he has acted like a moderate uh, moderate right. Then yeah, it's our duty to criticize him as progressives. And if we just let, if we don't call him out on what he does, then then we're just enabling him to to just to just respond to the right and not not do the things that he campaigned on for us progressives. I just I just don't see where, where that guy's criticism comes from. Uh, they report the facts. They it's not that they think that it's their way only, but it, but they try to tell you that as progressives we have we have certain duties, and when you don't do them, you're, that makes you a hypocrite. And I just wanted to say that. And thank you, Jay. I love the show. And I uh, have a very good one. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is the doctor calling in from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I've uh, been a faithful listener for uh, quite a few months now. I've called in once before. Uh, I was just calling in today in response to the uh, the final ad from... Uh, the, the June 5th show. I, I, I want to say that I completely agree with him 100% uh, about Citizen Radio. I, uh, I, I do like Citizen Radio. Uh, I agree with 90% of what they say uh, uh, and, and, and how their show is run. But the main reason that I'm not a faithful listener to them is, is because of that 10% that I absolutely just don't like about uh about how how things are uh, done over there uh, and um and that worldview they take about uh be, being a hundred percent right about everything uh, i i don't claim like the uh like the other gentleman i don't claim to know everything about everything either but uh it, it's it's just a, a little um uh what, what would be the right word here uh chaffish i guess um for, for them to, to take the view that they are right about everything, um, which is why I don't listen faithfully to their show anymore. Uh, thanks a lot, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Cody from Washington State, and I think I might know why the person who called in a few shows back thought that Citizen Radio is inconsistent when it comes to abortion. Because Jamie and Allison have actually had problems in the past with people sending them very, very angry emails saying, oh my God, why do you hate women and black people and and Mexicans and and all these other minorities and things. And it's generally because they were being sarcastic and doing a bit. And if you take it in context and knowing their sense of humor and considering sarcasm and all, then it's usually pretty clear, I think, because they'll be saying things like, no, 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 it's, listen, this is our planet. The end goal here is just to make people realize that all women are evil. It's just, no, no, that's, that's, it's just that all women are evil and that we all, that's the Republican Party, we hate them. And, and, you know, this is, it's like, that's, it's clearly not what they actually think. It's clearly just like a comedy, a bit, something to mock people who actually are doing things that are taking away women's rights. And so, um, just wanted to just add that in. Hopefully that's enlightening. 
or something. All right. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Bye.